This podcast is brought to you by Ideate and Execute. Do you want to drive innovation in your organization, futurize your enterprise, ideate massively valuable new products, or execute them to market? Then contact us today at ideateandexecute.com and get started. Why listen to the past when you can listen to the future? Welcome to the Think Future Podcast, broadcasting from deep in the heart of Silicon Valley, California. We focus on innovation, startups and the future, not necessarily those and not necessarily in that order. Here's your host. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's good to finally meet you because it's how we meet each other through Zoom nowadays. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization and what you're passionate about. Right. Well, uh, my name is Greg McNeil, and uh, I've spent my career in product development. Um, so product management, product engineering, systems engineering, um, execution, leadership. Um, and it's always been across different industries. Um, um, I think it's always been driven kind of my innate curiosity, right? Just interested in kind of the new and the different and how they work. Um, and just the, the touch points that I've seen I would say I've seen a lot about what works, and I've also seen what um, what doesn't work as well. Um, and I've built, um, you know, I've built computers for Apple. Um, I've built listening devices for the CIA, smartwatches for Samsung, uh, smart clothing for Nike, um, and just I think there's other things that I've worked on that you know we we have yet to see. Um, and I'd say in the last you know 10 plus years, the focus has really been on the new and the different and more conceptual design. Um, so I do a couple things, uh, to satisfy that. Um, you know, one, I, I have a consulting, uh, company that I, that I run that focuses on early conceptual designs from a systems perspective. So this is hardware, software, app interface, you know, wireless connectivity. Um, so I, I do that. And then I also have a, um, you know, full-time job. I work for a large fortune 500 company. Um, focused on product management, marketing, but I also find myself gravitating to, you know, kind of the new and different, even in my role as a, you know, product manager and a marketeer, um, things that are different and things that are changing. Um, the second part of your question was, <clears throat> what am I passionate about? Um, and I'm really, you know, passionate about the things that have never been done before, right? I, I've sat with with many from a customer or just, you know, any kind of interaction I might have in a in a product development setting. Um, and I've always found that, you know, it's, it's, it's not so much the ideas that might be new and different, but how do we take those ideas and do something with them? So I'm always very excited about when somebody's trying to do something different. Um, and it's not always just products. It's even, you know, how we go about conceiving products. How do we interface with potential customers out in the marketplace to understand what might be needed? What might be we be missing in our present product line? So, you know, a lot of that is really new too. So you know, I'm always excited about, you know, the new and the different, always excited to learn something new. So that's, <clears throat> that's really my focus, my background and, and my passion. Because on new innovative things, that's one of the reasons why I moved to the Bay Area. But uh, it's interesting what you mentioned that pro- so product management is kind of, it's almost an fairly new in the form that it is today, because uh, you know, even a few, I mean, how many years ago, 10, 15 years ago, there was no such really th- such thing as 
like product management, unless you were talking about sort of physical products, right? And physical, but are you talking about physical products specifically, or are you talking about software or? Um, I tend to work with systems. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fine with software and hardware. My background has been in hardware development. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say in the last 10 years, software and hardware have become just completely interlinked. Right. And, you know, one is made more valuable with the other. Obviously, there's some software examples where that's not necessarily the case, but I think mm-hmm. hardware is always made more valuable with, with, with software, whether right. it's connectivity, it's, you know, data that's being broadcast, analyzed, and then something is being spit down to the device that it can then execute the next thing. Um, so I, I think the two together is, is really my focus um, and how they come together. And that includes, you know, firmware and under the underlying architecture of the hardware. Um, right. But I agree with you. I think it has changed quite a bit. Well, what would you say? I mean, what's your definition of it? Because if you ask me, everyone has a different definition of what product management is. I mean, does it run the spectrum from conception, preconception to to support, or is there is there a piece of it that's that's outside of that? Yeah, I've always thought the product management discipline starts very, very early in the process, and it extends all the way to the end. And I used to think of it in kind of two visual ways. Um, one was was like a like a curve, right? So product managers development, sorry, development is more like a Gaussian distribution, right? It's got mm-hmm. a nice bell curve, right? Yeah. We we start off small, the idea is just germinating. Then we think about it technically and how we're going to do it. We start pulling the team together, and then you have this big burst of resources to to execute on the engineering side of that. Where right. product management tends to obviously everything starts from zero, but they tend to ramp very quickly. And then they slowly start to come down as they're kind of communicating that vision to the engineering team and the engineering team is continuing to grow. And I've always kind of thought of product management in my mind between depending on complexity of product, but in the the space I've been with um, the types of products I've done, product management is always kind of in an engineering to product management ratio of, you know, maybe as low as 12 to one, depending on Mm -hmm. complexity and market, maybe all the way up to 25 to 30 to one. So mm-hmm. a product manager to a group of engineers that are building a product. Um, so that that product management curve starts to drop down, certainly near the peak of the engineering kind of Gaussian bell-shaped curve. Mm-hmm. And then the product manager starts to curve back up as engineering starts to drop off because now they're that communication vehicle to the market, working with the go-to-market folks within their own team. They're working with the market um, itself and the acceptance of the product. And then depending on products are distributed, they're sold directly, they're sold through channels, all of those kinds of things, all the way out until we get to maybe the end of life of that product. And then how does it trans transition with a, another generation or it's been replaced by something completely different. So that's, right. that's one way I think of the two. And then the other visual um, that always helps when I kind of communicate these, this, this kind of dance between the two, because I think there always has to be healthy tension between product management and the engineering side. Mm-hmm. And I think of product management as actually painting an image and it's a watercolor image. So it's not really crisp, not super, super clear, but you have an idea that it's a landscape. It's a landscape with a few people in, in, in front of you know a body of water, whatever it might be. So you have this kind of watercolor painting. And then as engineering starts to take on that exact same image, it's really fine pencil line drawing. I mean, every detail is crisp and clear, which is why you have a volume of people to create that detail from mm-hmm. maybe the one or two people that had created that original concept. So that's how I think about them is this, 
you know, kind of um, not as clear and concise impressionistic water painted image, if you will, to this really crisp line drawing, which is really the recipe for the product that we're going to build. Um, right. And does Agile, <clears throat> is Agile in the entire process or is it just basically mostly in the development process? Um, well, you know, it's interesting because I think traditionally um, when I started earlier in my career, product management was this really well-defined you know, PRDs was the the ultimate document that they would release. And, you know, I've done yeah. presentations on product management, um, the discipline itself. And one of the slides I used to present was, you know, the three letters PRD on a huge slide with a big red circle and a slash. I, said, I remember those days. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, just just trying to communicate to people, not that the PRD is, is not the right thing to do or it's dead or you know, it's just it, it's it's when you're focused on the new and the different. Um, to me, it feels like a uh, experienced entity that's understanding the market and, and digesting market research and analyzing all the data they have about the technology and how people might use it. And then creating this PRD that then gets kind of handed to engineering that then starts to figure out how to do that line drawing that has the detail. I, I think that we, we don't have good vehicles for the um, iteration, right? Mm -hmm. there, there needs to be a more iterative process. So that's always what I've been promoting certainly through um, through the consulting that I do with Curio Labs is let's let's figure out what we think we need really quickly and let's figure out how to build it really fast and it you know might look a little ugly at first um, it might have some wires hanging off the side of it but if that's not really critical for how people are going to interact with it then let it go you know let mm -hmm. it be okay and then start to get that feedback and then realize oh my gosh we totally thought the market wanted this when in reality they, they kind of wanted something slightly different. So we get to learn and that's where that iterative process comes in, which is the, you know, fail fast and, um, you know, design thinking and some of these kind of terms that became certainly more mainstream, you know, 10, 15 years ago, at least, um, you know, from when I started to hear about them and started to implement them and try try them differently. So that's kind of how I think about that transition it, and how we hand off. It seems like we've evolved, the the the, the science of it, I guess, has evolved into more of a, almost like an internal entrepreneur, right? You're, you, you, you start from the, you run the whole thing from beginning to end with, with teams doing, doing parts of it, but the product manager is really involved in the entire process and the product lives or dies based on the, uh, the product management manager shepherding it through the process. Yeah. And I think they, they really represent that one key thing is, you know, the champion, mm. you know, it, it doesn't have to come from the product manager, but I think any, any worthwhile effort that a team is trying to undertake requires champions. They're, the champion's torch may, may transition depending on where we are in the state or phase of that whole um, team effort, but the champion is critical. And I think oftentimes the product manager becomes the champion. And a lot of engineers that default to the champion role tend to gravitate to product management roles right. um, over time. And so I think that's a, that's a kind of a key piece that they definitely can be the one that holds the torch, but so long as somebody is holding the torch and is preparing to hand off as maybe their expertise or their experience starts to not maybe play as big a role. But I think the product manager definitely plays that champion, um, you know, torch carrying role as well. Yeah. And I think what's interesting <clears throat> is sort of like a combination of skills, right? I mean, it's not, you can't, you, ha you can't just be technical and you can't be sales focused and you can't be uh, to customer focus and it's it's really a broad range of skills that you need to have to be uh good in that spot in that space 
Yeah, I, 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 um, I kind of go back to this role that I originally saw when I worked for Apple. Um, I went in as a manufacturing engineer and then um, very quickly fell in love with product and product development and wanted to find a role in that world. And I came across a role that was called an engineering generalist. That was the title. <laughs> and some people might think like... That is really vague. <laughs> that sounds really vague. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, the more vague, the better, because that's just the more things you're going to learn because it's yeah. just a broad... And it was, it was a very broad role. And really, it it was just another term for a program manager. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know that going into it. But it was a fantastic role, and I just got exposed to so much. And I think that as as you're you know highlighting, I think that's a really important skill set for the product managers to have that really broad role. But also too, if I don't know you know what's around that corner, I've got to be curious. I've got to peer around that corner and say, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that. And how does that connect back into what we're trying to do? Because inevitably, to me, engineering is just a, and I've explained this, uh, you know kind of to my teams many times is, look, we're just paid decision makers. Yeah, exactly. How fast you make the decisions, how little information you can make good decisions with, um, and then how do your decisions affect others around you? Because they're making decisions too. And so these mm -hmm. decisions kind of have to think. And so I, I think product managers also are kind of overseers of those decisions. And they're also the, once again, the champion, right? Because I'm trying to educate everybody as we go, because oftentimes when you're on these teams, I've got specialists and the specialist in one function doesn't really fully understand what the specialist in another function is doing. And so product managers and program managers, really you know, um, good, solid technical programming, they're really good at kind of educating the whole team on how it is to be in somebody else's shoes. Um, yeah. So you have a little bit healthier respect about timelines and deadlines and how handoffs happen and roles and responsibility and all those other kinds of things. So, Right. Well, what if you're uh, a lot of times we have issues sort of shepherding these products through an organization, like how, how do we get sort of innovative new products through the barriers that we might come up against? I'm sure you've had that situations where here's a really cool new thing that you want to do, but there's, there's a lot of pushback and, 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 uh, a reluctance to move it forward. I mean, how do you, how do you work on something like that? How do you help push those things through? I think there's, there's probably two phases to that, right? So uh, when I was running the innovation labs at, at Flex, also previously known as Flextronics, um, you know, we were really focused on if a customer had a specification, we had design teams all over the world, that the specification and your request could go to them. It's when you didn't have a specification and you had ideas you came to, to the group that I was building. Um, right. And, and so we really define that as just, we have to be a lot more comfortable with ambiguity because we're used to getting specs. We all came from product development, product management disciplines. And so we were used to getting specs and now, you know, we're, we're not, we're getting ideas and we're getting some yep. ideas that are like, wait a second, that's, that's crazy. You can't physically do that, <laughs> but it gives you insight into what they're thinking, right? That the, the particular, in this case, customers coming to us and sharing their ideas so we could help them with technology and implementation and building. Um, but, but I think that that first step is, is, is making sure your, your development team, and that's not always just engineers, right? We've got lots of people that are involved in development, product development creation, but getting them comfortable with ambiguity. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really important part that, once they're comfortable with ambiguity, when we get to the point where we, we're, we're peering over the edge and we can't quite get far enough over to see what we see, and we have to just use our experience and our own teamwork and 
basically make our best guess about what's going to be over that edge. And so we're prepared. Um, so I always used to paint this picture for engineering just to, to help them um, product development. Um, as I always told them, I said, look, we're, we're, we know where we want to go, right? Our goal is the mountaintop across this valley. And we can see the mountaintop. It's clear as can be. It's a beautiful day on that mountaintop, but it's a long way away. And we are, between us and that mountain is a valley. And that valley is just shrouded in fog. And we have no idea what we're going to experience on our path to that mountaintop. And so ambiguity and comfort with it is important because you're really walking into the unknown. But I think that, you know, building tools for um, <clears throat> how do we take what we've known in the past? How do we take our history? How do we take all that and not let it, you know, force us down a path that maybe isn't the best path based on what's facing us right now? Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we practice that. We, we often would hold, you know, brainstorming sessions where we could actually just practice sharing ideas. We did all sorts of workshops on um, improv, if you will, right? Engineers trying to do improv with each other. But it just, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> it was because that must the have been that fun. out of that were quite <laughs> interesting. But um, it just forced us to use kind of some parts of our brains that maybe we weren't as comfortable with. Um, and I think that was maybe the first part of of uh, your development team has to be comfortable with ambiguity when you're focused on the new and the different and the conceptual turning into, you know, minimum viable products growing to prototypes that are growing to final products. I think the second part of it that I've learned is not only does your development organization have to kind of be comfortable with it, but you have to get everybody else around it that's supporting it in some way, whether it's you're, you're doing this for a customer or there's an end market you have in mind, or there's an entire ecosystem you're trying to stimulate and show them that, hey, there's a different way. And if we did this, we could leverage that and this together. And now we have something much bigger than those parts. So I think that for me, my experience has always been right when I said early on, right, systems, I've always been about systems is you gotta build something and put it in their hands. Um, and it doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be, it has to be relevant to your audience, right? If you're trying to pitch somebody on a new product concept, and this is the first time they're gonna really kind of viscerally, visceral, viscerally feel it, you can't give them something that's you know made out of cardboard and it's got stuff hanging off of it and it looks awful and doesn't fit well in your hand. So much for the and, design thinking argument, right? <laughs> well, th there's a time and place for that. But once again, I was sure. saying your audience, right? Because if I'm trying to communicate an idea to somebody who's really been thinking about this for a long time, but they don't know how to develop it or they don't know how to create, well, then fine. Cardboard's going to be work great for them. But when I'm trying to maybe go to somebody who's going to ultimately say we're going to invest in this or not, I think that initial impression is really important. So I think it's critical to be able to show people and showing can be something you can mock up in. Software, it can be something you can even do on a whiteboard, depending on your audience. But if you're actually trying to go out there and um, <clears throat> win somebody over and really convince them that there's opportunity here, you know, make it as um, high fidelity as you can, as quickly as you can. And you have to make those trade-offs because it's fine to, to tell somebody too, like, we've completely ignored this half of it because we know how to do that. We know we can do that, but we wanted to get this in your hands. So basically look at it from the right, don't look at it from the left. Or, or something like that, right? So I think that's the second part of it, right? Is building a product organization that's comfortable with ambiguity and then quickly being able to figure out how you can turn ideas into something that people can actually experience. Um, and that experience is different depending on who they are and where they're coming from. 
to help move these things forward or, it, or can you do it without? Um, it depends what you're doing. Mm. I think if it's if it's really far out there, it's really something that people are going to have a real struggle embracing. I think having that champion out there is going to help. Um, I don't think it's always obvious when you start because there is so much ambiguity. Um, what characteristics you need in that champion, but ultimately, I do believe you're going to need champions at all levels. Um, right. And and how do you determine that? And how do you gain them? You know, that becomes the real the real challenge. Um, and I think probably for me, it's it's a harder question to answer because I've always kind of innately been the champion. Yeah. I'm just always so excited about something new. You just and, end up taking over in that well, role. <laughs> yeah, it just, it, it becomes like, um, it's just intuitive to be passionate and excited and show energy about it. And I, you know, yeah. I've always gotten that kind of feedback because I always have tons of energy. Um, but I think it is really important. And I would say in past experiences where I haven't spent enough time, especially with, you know, kind of executive level <clears throat> oversight that ultimately is funding some of these things. Um, you know, I've certainly learned lessons in my career that, yeah, we could have done a better job at that. And, and maybe that would have changed the course of how this went, or maybe it would have, you know, ended it sooner or it would have extended it longer. So I, I think it is important. Um, and, and whether or not you think you have them, it's really important to figure out, you know, who they are because mm -hmm. you, you can use them to help kind of build that momentum and maintain that momentum, depending on what you're ultimately trying to do. And it's hard to, you know, kind of generalize on, you know, one system that works for no matter what it is. It, it just depends. I mean, it depends on your team. It depends on the market. It depends on, you know, the technologies that you're embracing, uh, depends on the disruption that you're maybe ultimately trying to overcome. Um, it depends on the, the strength of an ecosystem. Um, I've, I've done products that are trying to you know, have an impact on an ecosystem. And the ecosystem, when I say that, it's just many, many things that contribute to the experience that a customer might have. And so you're being able to influence a product that solves a particular problem and people are really excited about it is a different problem than a product that contributes to a group of services and solutions and products and behaviors that are then part of a bigger ecosystem. They're different kinds of things. And it's important to kind of know what you're getting into when, when you start because how you embrace it, how you contribute to it might be different. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like uh, the ROI of innovation, right? Because a lot of times you're you're pushing forward <laughs> and you're coming up with these concepts, which they got a fuzzy connection to ROI, right? You can't say, you know, this particular feature is going to bring in X amount of money. So you can't really even do a business case for it. But there's tons of great ideas out there. Are there, have you? Do you have any tactics or strategies on how you can convince people to look at those ideas and do something with them? Because I'm sure um, you've must have, you must have had some ideas in the queue that are like, that's great, but I don't see how we can charge for it. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's interesting to kind of get people over that hump. Um, I've experienced this a lot in the industrial space, right? So mm -hmm. these are industrial products that show up in, you know, factories and, you know, manufacturing environments and testing environments. And, you know, people think big, heavy machinery it doesn't always have to be big, heavy machinery, but um, machinery is kind of a good way to think about it. And a lot of companies in the industrial space that specialize in industrial products have been reaching out and trying to, how do I, you know, make my products smarter? Um, how do I, you know, create more data? And then, you know, kind of what do I do with it? And that's been challenging. Um, mm. And I talked to others that have, 
you know, focus specifically on the uh, industrial space. And I think we commonly, you know, come back to this point, like, you know, we built this high fidelity model very quickly, you know, we communicated what the vision was, and now it's, you know, kind of the blocking and tackling and really kind of thinking things through and how the business model is going to change. And these weren't just, we're going to cannibalize the existing business model and we're going to uproot it and have something completely new. No, it's, these are, these were, you know, secondary and, and tertiary kind of connections to existing business models, and they could take time to develop. So they were, they were fairly safe, but I can remember doing a, a, you know, innovative product many years ago, where we were trying to integrate technology. When I say technology, I really mean, you know, kind of electronics and PCBs into textile based products. And mm-hmm. this happened to be in a, in a woman's handbag that we were integrating technology and we got all the way to you know production level. This isn't a super complicated product or anything, but um, and when the company finally finally digested the product, they realized that they have no they have no way to to get this product to their customers because this was a women's fashion brand. They wow. did you know dresses and accessories and handbags and a little bit of right. jewelry. But to start to think about technology and technology products and when they don't work and how do you support your customers that are used to coming into buying, you know, material-based products that are, you know, really nice looking and they feel really good against your skin. And all of a sudden now the thing won't turn on. Yeah. How do I deal with that? So exactly. It's, a, it's a completely foreign thing. It's a totally—it's yeah. a different yeah. problem, and we used to joke that on their manufacturing line, because this particular handbag we were making was a leather handbag being manufactured somewhere outside the U.S. I can't remember exactly where, but we used to kind of joke like, "Are they even going to have you know electrical outlets on the manufacturing line? Or is it people literally yeah. hand sewing these at a table? Because yeah. we have to then test it when it's done, or does it have to go to another facility? And it's just a different kind of world because we don't worry about having plenty of outlets in the traditional technology manufacturing facility that we can do these things. So that is the hard part um, that I've found many times over. And I've even found it where, right, let's just say you're you're going down a path and you're trying to uh, create something new um, that, you know, it started from ideas and you're really building that prototype proof of concept. Generally, you know, you're looking across the market and you're saying, look, this is the product type that we're going to compete with. It's not always something just totally brand new. You're you know, it's it's the margarine and the butter kind of thing, right? Yeah, because um, it's, it's and, very and, difficult to introduce something completely brand new because I mean, you've got to educate people. It's it's and, and how do you convince people to create something and sell something completely brand new? I mean, sometimes it's just a fluke that yeah, it actually yeah. works out. But go on. It is, and and so I would find that often we would cross off. You know, like hey, we can we can we can beat it on that point. We can beat it on this point, but uh, yeah, at this point we're still not as good. Mm-hmm. So maybe we're we're less expensive. We're faster. And we're brighter, but we're louder and we're heavier, just throwing out some variables, right? And so you can automatically in your mind kind of think about like, okay, well, I could see where that could be replacing depending on how customers weight those particular variables. I did a project at an industrial company and every single checkbox, no matter what you compared it to, was better. And every category, it was cheaper, it was lighter, it was better, it had higher fidelity, it had more data, everything about it. And this particular company just... They, they just couldn't quite figure out how to turn that into something because all of a sudden they went from selling a, a, a box, if you will, to selling uh, an intelligent box that they could literally, sorry, to potentially giving away the same box and selling services that they could actually extract more revenue over time 
from the box they used to previously sell. So that was the level of business model change that they were having to think about. Um, and I think we see more and more of that, but it still, it was, it was really difficult. Not that any one person in the company couldn't understand what you were saying, but it was changing their own systems and their own philosophy and their own business models and how they measure their, their, their themselves and how do they change. And those become the more intangible things that are more and more difficult to try and communicate. So I think it's important that you're taking the baby steps, which is why if we sit down and we conceive of the most amazing product and has all the great integrated technology, and then we spend you know, another year plus developing it, um, it, it you got to kind of lead folks along with the little baby steps, which is why the the conceptualizing and the MVPs and the prototypes and the proof of concepts and all these things kind of help because one, it signals too that, look, we don't know everything. You're closer to the customer. You're closer to the business than maybe we are, if, especially if I'm a third party coming in to help you or even if we're part of the same company where my background is more on the market and the, and the engineering and you're more on how do we run this business long-term or how does it affect our other businesses? You want to bring those people along because they're going to kind of kind of collectively chip away at the ideas that only make it better and better and better, um, which also, in addition to kind of being comfortable with ambiguity, you have to have a relatively thick skin because you're like, this is the greatest idea ever. And then somebody <laughs> points something at it and you're like, oh, wow, I hadn't, <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, but that's a good point, right? So yeah. I think that, that it's, it's the little kind of incremental wins um, and kind of spoon feeding people along the way and, and being prepared to kind of shift um, as new things come up or as it fits better into an existing business model that allows them to, um, you know, integrate it over time as opposed to taking maybe a lot of risk. Um, and it's just different. Different industries assume a different amount of risk for the new and the different um, industries that are higher, more highly regulated. That has a whole different culture around product development, medical devices, automotive um, products, as opposed to a consumer electronic device. They're, they're very different, some of the cultures um, and expectations around them. So all those kind of have to be fed into the machinery as you're kind of working through to, to answer your question. How do you get people to kind of buy into it? Um, yeah. I think it's it's a, a small bite at a time, um, honestly. Well, it's kind of like speaking of bites, um, it's kind of like the way I think of Apple. Like everyone keeps talking about how Apple is the most innovative company in the world, right? And and personally, I don't think they they are. I mean, they're excellent at execution. And if they really were innovative, they'd have you know a Google Glass or an augmented reality goggles or something. They'd be pushing MVPs out all the time, and it would it would be on the cutting edge of things. But that's not how they operate. They operate in the laggard. They operate in the sort of super public super popular the the technology for everyone so that's why they don't just throw stuff out there like google does and expect people to play with it you know they they do it in a very measured way it's a very measured approach that's why when you when you pick up one of their devices it's already been thought through really well and mm -hmm. if you ask me i don't that that's doesn't feel innovative to me it feels like it's excellent execution but it's not particularly innovative but that's fine because sort of your regular person on the street probably doesn't want anything that's too cutting edge or too innovative or too out there right yeah no i would agree and i've worked with companies uh, in the past that have you know innovation or very innovative in kind of their moniker what they're known for in their particular markets um 
whether it's consumer electronics, whether it's you know the sporting good industry, whether it's even in automobiles. Um, and and I think what's interesting is, on the whole, I would agree with you that you know the time I spent at Apple, I learned product development. You know, I guess the Apple way because it was early in my career, and I still interact with companies now that are that they don't have what Apple had twenty plus years ago and how yeah. they implemented and how they executed. Um, and I think you know many things are different, and it's very. Um, it's much harder to do development inside Apple now than when I was there because everything is so secretive. And I, I do mm -hmm. some work with them. Um, I have many, you know, colleagues that that work there, and we share stories. But it, it's hard because they, they have the secretive element to it. But I think there's also, um, you know, companies like that, um, and and others that I've experienced where there's pockets of innovation that happen. So I think that where we see some of the things that 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 seem like they're kind of obvious, but probably are much harder than we thought they would be when we see them and start using them. And I think Apple's really good at that. They're really good at making it seem like um, this has been easy. And so I, I imagine there's there's many pockets inside where some of these ideas can, um, you know, can can kind of germinate. Um, and there's, you know, there's you know, Google's done this with, you know, the, the one day per week where you can kind of explore different ideas. And I think different companies treat it differently about how they at least hold it dear. So that's probably something that leads to some of the advances that we see, because I, I found that from an innovation perspective, especially when I was really focused on it um, in the labs at, at, at Flextronics, working with a lot of different customers, because they're all coming in. So we had this massive pipeline of ideas um, that we we found that oftentimes innovation is just taking things that exist and repackaging them in different ways that are unexpected yeah. and unusual that all of a sudden serve a slightly different purpose, or they've gotten rid of friction in the system that everybody struggled with but couldn't articulate. So it wasn't yeah. clear to say, oh, if you could just make it do this better, then I would be so much happier. Yeah. It, it's not as easy as that. And so I found that when we were really, really focused and condensed and doing it over and over with very different types of ideas in different markets, that it really became, um, how do you fit things that are fairly common together in new and different and unusual ways that have mm -hmm. outcomes that you never would have imagined? Um, yeah. And I think, like I said earlier, getting people comfortable with that. And I imagine that some of the other companies I mentioned, Apple that you mentioned, there's pockets inside where these kinds of things flourish. And those then trickle out to the, you know, the more mainstream kind of things um, that then show up in products or they've now tweaked something that, you know, that, that's happened. I don't know how Apple communicates across the, the, you know, the, 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 um, the silence boundaries, right? Because certain teams don't know what other teams are doing because there's a certain, you know, kind of um, a secretiveness to what they do, which is also part of the, you know, marketing mystique. Um, but I imagine there's pockets of these kinds of pools of resources where these ideas can flourish and then they kind of bounce back into the mainstream. Um, that's how I would, I would imagine it would happen. And I think that's healthy for any company. Um, and I often um, see that companies trying to have these, you know, innovation centers or an innovation lab. So ideas can find a place to flourish. The challenge they generally have is how do they get accepted back into the system? Um, I saw a job description not too long ago and it was for a, um, innovation leadership in some capacity. I don't remember exactly how it was worded or whatever, but it was talking about all the things that we respect about innovation, you know, trying and failing and learning and failing fast and all these other things. But it had actually <laughs> written, written by HR, no doubt. <laughs> and it had, it had written in the job description that a 50% failure rate, 
So every other thing you did had to be successful. So what? one thing you that is from, high. One thing you failed from. Yeah, I mean, it just. And I thought, wow, that that's somebody who doesn't really understand how this yeah. works because if your expectation is is that every other thing that I do is going to be a you know a rocket ship to the moon, that that's not how the exploratory side works. Yeah. And so therefore, yeah. it, then it needs different metrics. We need different metrics and different ways to track it, which are themselves, at least the ones that I've found and implemented over time, they tend to be, um, you know, uh, not as crisp as an ROI or a, you know, a PO with a dollar amount on it yeah, or a exactly. schedule with a date. I mean, those are all very crisp and clear. So I, I think it's, that's comfortable with ambiguity. The team can be comfortable, but you know, whoever that team is ultimately reporting up to also has to be comfortable. And so there, there are metrics you can use and you can track. And I think that, you know, along the lines of, you know, KPIs that really make sense for the type of work you're doing is that thick skin comment I made earlier. I mean, if you're, if you're failing more than half the time, and that's kind of really what's expected. But remember, you're failing fast. So you're not spending a lot of time and dollars to figure things out. And every time yep. you fail, it's really a lesson. That's what I used to like to think. It's what did we learn? What did we yep. learn? And then that can be applied yep. to the next thing. But I think that um, uh, that's really important because you have to be pretty confident to, to often be learning um, as opposed to having POs come flying across the desk. Um, yeah. it's, it's a different kind of mindset. Yeah. And you have to be, the, the, the business has to be open to that. They have to be okay with it, right? I mean, 50% is seems so high. I mean, it would probably be like 1% success rate, if you ask me. I mean, to, to really test everything out, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. It would be it'd be much, much lower. That, and once again, how, how far out am I reaching, right? I mean, I, am I working on the next generation of product that we're shipping today? Yeah, you know, your failure rate should be relatively high because those are expensive endeavors. If I'm on the generation two after that, or if I'm just developing technology that ultimately is going to find its way into something, and, and I just wrap a product around it so people can 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 kind of digest it and experience it, th- they're all kind of slightly different entities. But I think so long as you have that discussion early on and people are all aware, then it the expectations can be more clearly set. So people aren't like, well, wait a second, this is like the third time you've tried this and you know, well, when are we going to get something for it? And, I, and I'd often had that, um, you know, at, at Flex. And one of the metrics that we came up with, which was, what do we influence? How much business do we influence? And so you'd ask the salespeople, if it weren't for what we're doing and you being able to bring your customers and have the experience that we have with them, whether we take their ideas and help them in an innovation workshop, turn them into something meaningful, whether we actually built them some prototypes so they could decide like, wow, we're really not ready to do that product yet. You mm-hmm. know, and there may be some energy energy that exchanges for that. But now all of a sudden that customer looks at the entire company and says, wow, this is somebody I want to partner with more. I want it at a higher scale. So you'd ask your salespeople, like how much business did we influence by our interactions with your customers? And you get some numbers back and all of a sudden you add that up over time. And it's like, we're influencing a half billion dollars worth of business. Yeah. And this is just a small little group that is also doing other things as well. So that became a really big um, measure for us. But, you know, once again, it's, can somebody really measure how much business you're influencing? No, but if you pull enough people and you kind of add that up and put some safety factors around it, you know, you, you get something that's reasonable. Right. Do you think some of this has to do with uh, sort of like bringing a new product to life has to do with the difference between sort of simplicity and complexity? Because the idea seems very simple, right? It's just like, here's the here's an idea that we've come up with. We brainstormed it. 
this is the concept and you can see the possibilities, but then actually trying to turn it into something that's implementable, that's when sort of there's tons of complexity underneath there that people don't really think about. Is that, does that, is that the case sometimes? Uh, I, I definitely think that's the case. I, I used to use analogy again. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I like to kind of talk in pictures, but I would tell the teams that when we would start something and we've done the brainstorming and we've got ideas, and we've got multiple things and we've kind of boiled it down and we've got some market input and we, you know, some technology input. And I would tell them, I said, look, there's tons of variables sitting on the table in front of us right now. Imagine them as little pieces of paper, as widgets, whatever you want to imagine them, they're variables. We don't know how they're going to be ultimately specified. That's what I mean by a variable. We don't know if it's going to be five or 10. Mm. I don't know. Um, and so what I would tell them is I'd say, first thing we do is all the variables that we understand well enough, we know how we're going to do it. We just don't know exactly, get all those off the table. Mm. So really start to boil down to the things that are super meaningful. And then what you're left with is you're left with some variables that are, that are really hard to kind of, you know, maybe understand they're, they're variables that are going to be difficult to connect together. But now if I can build my, my proof of concept or my prototype or my MVP around those few variables that are left, remember earlier when I said, oh yeah, just look at it from the right side, not the left yeah, side. Yeah. L- let the wires dangle out, go and find something that exists that has 80% of what you're trying to show and tear it apart, use pieces from it. And, and then now when you're able to take that out and let somebody interact with it, and it could just be a colleague, it doesn't have to be somebody that you don't know, it doesn't have to be a customer, it could just be somebody that gives you some feedback. And then very quickly, you realize the importance of those variables. And many times it's like, we thought it was going to be way more important than it was, but it's really not that important. So now that one can come off, but we got to brag the, bring these other couple on, but those ones we understand better. So now the problem just feels like it's a little bit better understood. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think when you're dealing with the unknown and ambiguity and ultimately how it's all going to come together, right? How are we going to get through that fog shrouded valley? It, 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 you've got to, you've got to limit um, how much stimulus, right? You can imagine you're down in that valley and now it's dark yeah. and then you start hearing things and you're stepping in things that are squishy and uncomfortable and it's cold and warm at the same time. And you're, you're, you're just like ready to explode. You should be a writer, man. I love your analogies. <laughs> you're like overstimulated. And that's just a simple way of saying there's too many variables on the table. Let's get off the ones we know. And if we can't, then maybe we break it into two tables. And one team takes one and another team takes another, and then they come back together at some point and we start to connect the pieces that we know. And that's why I said earlier that a lot of times it's just taking what we know and just putting it together in ways that just people haven't done before. Because, you know, if you're going to invent technology, right, I mean, you're going to invent some new rocket fuel, that's a different endeavor. It still can have the innovative side to it, can have the conceptual side to it, but it, it's just a very different big problem as opposed to you know, a better way to, you know, communicate something um, in the types of products that we already do. And I see a lot of that in, you know, like I said earlier, the industrial space, the automotive space, um, the fitness kind of wearable space. That's a lot of places I've spent my time. I guess IoT falls into all those categories, but it's that general big category that, right. you know, compute sensors and connectivity. That's really what IoT is to me. Um, yeah. But that's relatively new. Not a lot of products had compute connectivity and some sort of data gathering or spitting, you know, data spitting, meaning it's sending data um, capability 10, 15 years ago, not a lot of products do, but now pretty much everything has the capability. Just how do we turn it into something useful? How do we monetize it? How do we build different business models around it? That's the unique and fun stuff. Everything collects 
a lot of things spit. It's like, what do you do with it all, right? I think I think we're at the at the point right now where we're collecting as much as we possibly can, assuming that at some point in the future we may be able to use it. Yeah. Right. Because <clears throat> I remember when I was working with a bank and they were collecting, they were trying to figure out quantum, um, some quantum stuff, and it was kind of like, well, what if somebody's collecting all this data right now? They're collecting all these transactions that have been encrypted. And at some point in the future, they may be able to figure out how to decrypt them using quantum computing. So that's why we need to figure out quantum computing, because sometime in the future, someone who's collecting them today may be able to in- encrypt them. And it's like, I can't even think that far out, but I guess it is possible. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thought. I mean, and I think that, um, you know, part of our discussion was around kind of the, the future of, you know, where does all this kind of go? Um, and I don't know if you're ready to jump there next. Oh, yeah. Let's I go. Was gonna, I was going <laughs> to connect something. To what Are you, you going to mention saying. AI? Are you going to mention ChatGPT? Because this is now's the time. Well, <laughs> those are certainly things which are they're fun to experiment with. I, I tell you that. Um, yeah. But I I think that ultimately where things go and the way that you win is um, as you were saying, right? Everybody's collecting data. Everybody's just collecting data. We might find that most of that data is useless. Mm. Um, but we aren't quite sure yet what data might be useless and whatnot. So it makes sense to collect as much as you can. Um, And I I think that ultimately where you go, if you look at like um, optimization and how you get more and more optimized is the the one that um, infers the most is the one that ultimately wins, right? Mm -hmm. Because today we might have a product that has, you know, three different sensors that then take that data and then they spit out two outcomes, you know, not an A, not an A or a B, but two, two, two different pieces of data that come from the three data inputs. Well, if I have to build that device and build the software for it, then it seems like if I built exactly the same thing, but I only had two sensors, but I could still generate the same two outputs from two sensors, not three sensors, then that's what I mean by inference. So this device is inferring what that third piece of data looks like. And mm-hmm. ultimately, if I can bring that solution to market, then that should be less expensive than the one that needs three sensors. And so that inference is really where it gets important. And you know, so AI is certainly playing in that world. That's kind of slightly what it's doing, but a more mechanized approach. Um, and then I just, you know, more recently started thinking about, you know, we have lots of data stored in the cloud, right? There's lots of cloud service providers that are storing all this for us, but that yep. that data doesn't that data doesn't cross pollinate. Mm-hmm. Um, if there was a way to cross pollinate that data, now you can, certainly you can have a hybrid cloud solution that I've got data stored on Google cloud and I've got it stored on AWS, but connecting that data through those two entities, which of course, since the data is mine, you can't do that, but I can do that. But can I do that with another third party? Can I do that with a partner company? So starting to connect those data streams and make more useful inferences out of them is, I think is going to be a really powerful thing. Now. When I spoke earlier about ecosystems, whew, that's a really big looking ecosystem. When you're mm-hmm. thinking about all of the people that are contributing to that data, companies that are contributing to that data, the cloud service providers that are allowing us to hold it and then analyze it and do all sorts of wonderful things with it, as well as data that's sitting on-prem and data that's in devices that maybe has no way to get out yet, that ultimately will have a way to get out and you start putting all that data together, then I think it becomes the, uh, you know, kind of the race to who can infer the most accurately. Um, Because we often have 
devices that are you know strapped on our wrist or whatever that are telling us that you know we we're stressed or we need to rest or I have a <clears throat> bike computer um, and I finish you know a long ride I've been riding my bike for a long time raced for many many years and I'll go finish a ride I didn't I, I haven't raced for thirty plus years but I'll go finish a ride and they'll tell me that your recovery is I think the most I've seen is three and a half days whoa. It's recommending that I is that like a forty mile ride or something like that? <laughs> it might be a little bit more than that, and you know some intensity in there, but still, it's like, well, wait a second, I'm I'm not going <laughs> to not ride my bike. So it's it doesn't make any sense because it's giving me that, but it's trying to just generalize. Yeah. But generalizing with me that rode forty, who's ridden a couple hundred thousand miles in my life, versus somebody that maybe is just starting to ride forty, which is fantastic, but it it, it can't be just one size fits all. So. I think that's an important part of thinking about how, um, you know, products of the future. When I kind of say products, you know, my background is really in IoT, if you will, you know, things that have compute, things that have yeah. sensors, things that connect wirelessly so we can broadcast and compare and, you know, data goes well, both ways. So I think the thing is the technology is there, <clears throat> the data is there, it's all out there. We just need the people to agree to share it and figure out some way of sort of pulling it all together. Because I, I think... Uh, what I like to say is that everything's going to happen. The only question is when. So we have, I think we also have the technology. We have the technology and we have the data. We just need to, you know, get people to say, let me try this, right? Let, let's give this a shot. Because yeah. you're right. I mean, there's so many things around us that know so much about us, but they're not really doing anything. They're not proactively doing anything. I mean, I I, I have to tell Alexa, do this, do this, do this. It's rare, it's rare that it actually tells me something without me prodding it, right? I mean, is, they're starting to move in that direction now, but our systems, all of our systems around us, all the data that's being captured, they should be able to make these inferences and make suggestions, but it's just not doing it yet. And I think I think we're just, I mean, we might be afraid to, to step over that precipice or something like that, because like you said, it's, uh, it's foggy in there. We don't yeah. know what's going to happen. And, and I think it's hard. I think it's just hard. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like you know, autonomous vehicles and autonomous driving. I was just having this conversation at breakfast this morning with uh, with an old boss of mine who's a, who's an investor, and and we were talking about um, autonomous flight, especially helicopter flight. Which mm -hmm. helicopters are hard to fly, which is why we have helicopter pilots. And you and I just right. don't jump in helicopters and fly them. <clears throat> but to me, uh, autonomously flying a helicopter seems a lot easier than autonomously flying or driving a car because oh, yeah. Yeah. the environment that it's in. Now, unfortunately, the 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 risk of having something go wrong when you're in a helicopter is far worse than if you're in a car that can come to a slow, you know, slow itself down and pull over to the side. Or so that becomes, you know, a kind of a risk reward trade-off. But, um, you know, I think it is definitely interesting, and it's interesting to kind of think where, where ultimately all this goes. But you know, that's that's kind of how I boil it down: is if I can infer more data from fewer things than you need, then that is going to be an advantage, right? If we think about from an optimization perspective, um, but you know, it's, as you said, time will, time will tell. <laughs> well, I think we should have flying cars. I think we're, we're way past the time when we should have flying cars and you're right. I mean, it, it's, it, is it true that it's, you know, you're talking about safety earlier, but it is easier to have a flying car or, or, a, or a, a, sorry, an autonomous helicopter or autonomous, uh, airplane because of the fact that there's not that much out there for it to run into. Is that, isn't that the case? Or are there other forces that I can't even think of that would be affecting this thing? Well, I think this is one of the challenges that, you know, we tend to do is we tend to think 
think into the future with the environment as we understand it, right? But if we right. think into the future and if autonomous flight became something that was more mainstream, I mean, if you're in downtown New York City or Las Vegas and you're seeing the, you know, the touring helicopters that are flying around showing tourists the town or ferrying people, probably more ferrying in New York City. Yeah. Um, but now all of a sudden, you know, I don't know, three, four orders of magnitude of actual vehicles. Now that becomes a bigger problem. You do have elevation to your mm -hmm. advantage, but it becomes a different kind of problem uh, to solve. And does it become less and less efficient if I have to go three blocks and I leave from one high rise to another, but I have to go up, you know, 5,000 feet in order to be right. safe to do it. Well, all of a sudden now, well, that's not going to be very, you know, efficient to have to put out that much energy to move a body or a package or something from, from this point to that point, if just to be safe, because I want to have all these different things at different elevations. So, you know, big challenging, challenging problems for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. I, I completely <clears throat> forgot the fact that we have to think about where we're going to be, where we have hundreds or even thousands of these things flying through the air, it becomes even more difficult. But when you yeah. see these, when you see these um, sort of displays that people can do with program drones, you're like, oh, it's obviously going to be possible if we just upscale the whole damn thing a lot higher. Yes. And, you know, I mean, just, you know, the energy consumption too, right? If two people are having to fly somewhere as opposed to rolling on wheels. Yeah, like that's to, true. Because you know, that that means sustainability <laughs> is important. I mean, we have to think about those things because yeah. you know they they consume a lot of energy, and and you know we 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 learn that the hard way. It's some of the ideas. Um, a lot of the things with IoT, certainly in the last, I don't know, um, you know, ten years or so, battery usage and low power has gotten a lot more critical on the smaller little kind of devices, um, and how we think about that, and how we think about sustainability, and how we think about charging. Um, charging batteries, you know, wireless charging, not very efficient. So that means a lot of energy is just being wasted as heat. Yeah. Um, and is that, yeah. is that a good thing? We, you know, when a hundred million people are doing it, maybe it's not such a problem, but when 8 billion people are doing it, it becomes a much bigger problem. So, yeah. Well, I always thought that one of the issues we have too, is that we, ju we just seem to sort of fall into a groove instead of just looking at first principles of what we're trying to do. So for example, if you're trying to get a person of 250 pounds or so from point A to point B, there's a lot more effective ways of doing it than putting them in a, in a two ton SUV, right? So how do we get to that sort of minimum viable required vehicle to move this person from point A to point B? And then at the same time, allow the use cases of, oh, they want to travel with their family or they want to travel with their dogs or they want to travel with their bikes or whatever, right? So we, we have to, th I think we have to break through the barriers that we have today and think through those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think for sure. And, and where's that, you know, that person going to go? Are they going to the market? Are they going to a sports stadium with another 80,000 people? Are they going to work? Are they just going out to the open space so they can go on a hike? Yeah, exactly. It, it, it kind of depends on, or are they traveling, you know, to a foreign country to go for work or for fun and, and just different ways to think about um, all those things. But, they, you know, they all kind of play a role, which is why I think I go back to when you're doing this kind of innovative conceptual thinking, it, as many brains as you can have in there and as many opinion, opinions as you can have in there, it's important because I used to tell my team, <clears throat> it doesn't matter where the good idea comes from, but just be open-minded that it can come from anywhere. Yeah, It could come from somebody who's just wandering by and overhears you and they're not even part of the team and they're, maybe they're not even a technologist, but they'll say, oh, yeah, I would never use that because of this. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, never, I never thought of that. That's a totally valid point. 
Yeah, um, that's why it's important to sort of get out, get out from the, um, your team and just get out there and experience the world. And then also expose your uh, products to the outside, right? So that yeah. you can get feedback immediately and and take it from there. Yeah, yeah, no, for, for sure. And, and we often get locked in our little bubbles and, you know, it's 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 different kind of work. So we have to just be thoughtful. That's why I think the product management and product development disciplines, they, they have to be, um, it's like an organism. It mm -hmm. can't be uh, us versus them. It can't be throwing things over the wall. It can't be, I'm done with my piece. Now you do your piece and I'll tell you if, if it's good enough at the end. I mean, it, it just has to be collaborative, you know, yeah. kind of the whole time. Um, and and open-minded where you're always kind of looking for feedback. You're looking for that constructive feedback and not so defensive of what you're doing. Because it's hard when you've been working on something for a year and somebody goes, well, I wouldn't use that. Well, really? That hurt. As opposed to <laughs> tell me why. Tell yeah. me why. And exactly. I can either tell you that you're thinking about it wrong or, oh my gosh, that's something we hadn't thought about, or that's even a better idea. Yeah. So, or maybe that person who said that isn't the right market for what you're trying to sell. It, There's so, it, it, so many ways to it. It could be for sure. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Well, this is fantastic. Thanks so much. Um, if somebody else gets in touch with you, what's the best way? Uh, best way is uh, um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Greg McNeil, um, Curio Labs, um, and also uh, Greg at CurioLabs.com. And Curio is spelled with a K, K-U-R-I-O. L-A-B-S. Um, and that's the best way to get a hold of me. Awesome. So I'll put your contact information in the show notes if I move what's get in touch with you. So this has been great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much, Chris. Take care. Right, talk to you soon. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.